You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today is a guest speaker. We have Adrian Sadlin, who sold five of his startups. And this episode will focus heavily on what you need to raise your early round. So what do you need to have to raise friends, family, and fools? What do you need to raise pre-seed and so forth? So Adrian, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on your current startup, Candescent. Uh, well, first, Constantine, thank you so much for hosting us. Uh, well, uh, you know, my background is... Uh, I started my first company when um, when I was in college. Uh, ran it for five years after college. Sold it. Uh, did my MBA after that, and then I spent about the next uh, fifteen years of my career kind of building early stage companies and turning them around. I was sort of a CEO for hire and did a lot of early stage turnarounds and restructuring and pivots for uh, venture capital companies. And basically, if there was something that uh, wasn't quite scaling the way uh, ownership wanted, that's when my phone tended to ring. I've been in everything from consumer marketing businesses, direct response marketing to business to government SaaS plays. Uh, and I, after I sold my last company uh, in 2010, I took about four years off uh, and came out of my early retirement in 2015 to start Candescent, which is uh, the number one provider of branded flour to the California cannabis market. And, you know, our flagship brand, Candescent, or, you know, our namesake brand, Candescent, is sort of known for being the first ultra premium brand in the space and also introducing what's called effects-based marketing to the conversation. Nice. And first of all, congrats on Candice. And even though I'm not the biggest fan of these fields, uh, still great achievements there. So let's start by discussing uh, the major topic of today's episode. You know, what do you need to have to raise friends, family, and fools round? And by the way, uh, do you know why it's called friends, family, and fools now? So where's the fools part came in? Because it used to be just friends and family, I think. Uh, Well, I never heard the fools till just now, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I would, yes, I, I understand why that was added on because there's nothing more true than the first money in a company. It, without a doubt, it's the riskiest, it's pre-revenue, there may not be a business model, but aside from all those things that you know most people understand, what they don't understand is even if things end up going well or reasonably well, the mistakes made along the way sometimes can blow out the early stage investors in what's called a recap or a cram down. And so even though the company or the brand or the entity ends up going on to survive and do well and thrive, uh, the people who put money in that first stage uh, may end up not making any money when they see later stage investors end up cashing real checks. So maybe that's why they added the fools. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. I think that's that's an accurate explanation. And 
let's pretend that you've already raised the friends, family, and fools round, the three Fs round, uh, and moved on to the pre-seed. What should you ideally have at that stage to raise a successful you know, round? Well, I think generally there you need to have a fully developed business. First of all, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules about you're at this phase and therefore this needs to exactly happen. But generally speaking, uh, you certainly need a proof of concept against whatever you're doing. If it's a tech play, you probably need some kind of beta or prototype or working installation. You may not have chosen, chosen to take it out to market. Uh, you, you certainly would need the a slightly larger team, uh, but it you know you it should be at the point if you're going, you know your post friends and family and fools going into sort of that pre-revenue model. You know you should have a prototype or some or pretty well developed business plan and idea of what's about to happen that you can model out and put to invest show to investors that where you've gotten some level of traction. Now, in certain things, it's harder to do. So for example, uh, in my business, I personally wrote the checks in the into the FF and F round. Uh, so I self-funded it, but then I had to go to market and raise about $5 million in my, what some people was our true first round uh, in our series A. I didn't have a working cannabis facility at that point, but I was well on my way. I had applied for our licenses. Uh, we had already bought a piece of land. I had signed a lease for the building. So the, the train was already moving. You have to show that you've gotten something, I think, to get that next round after friends and family that there's actual work that's gone on that's created value that is like and that you're very likely going to get the opportunity to get the product in market and then you know once the data comes in we'll find out if it's successful mm -hmm. right that's a pretty accurate description of what you have to have on the pre-seed stage you know you have to show that the train is moving or at least it started to move uh so pre-seed stage is passed what's next what do you need to have on the seed stage well, again, um, to me, I tend to think about it. Each business is going to be different. So I mean to say there's everything is going to have friends and family, then pre, you know, then precede, then seed, then a series A. I mean, that feels like a lot of different steps prior to doing your first formal A round and very it is not likely that someone will go through all those steps. Um, but, you know, perfect example is I went straight from what would have been the equivalent from a friends and family round, the initial capital in to sort of bird dog and develop the opportunity straight into my series A. Uh, and it tends to be more de de uh, defined by the amount of money you raise, uh, in my opinion, than, necessarily going through each and every one of these steps. So I think the important thing for an entrepreneur to think about is what are the important milestones that I need to hit and that the money I'm raising, 
will allow me to hit so that when I go back to market to raise more, my valuation is potentially up or higher. Because, and then I would say whatever mm -hmm. number an entrepreneur convinces themselves that they need, uh, I'd say double it at whatever stage in those early stages because everything's going to take, you know, cost twice as much and take three <laughs> times as long. And so, you know, I, I would say think about the milestones think about how much money you need to get to the next milestone what that that next logical step is and then from there uh and then how much time it will take you to raise the next round based on the, the milestones and data you, that data set that you've been able to put together to show performance and then that's the amount of money you need times two right that's pretty accurate calculation i like it but uh but Let's be a little bit more specific here. So on average, I've seen founders raising money enough that should last them for like, I don't know, a year and a half of runway. What do you think is the ideal time frame there? It should be a year and a half, should be a little bit more, should be a little bit less. Uh, again, I think, you know, you, you, those are game time decisions, but I'd say generally speaking, if you're not cash flow positive uh, and you're burning capital, uh, you know, a year's worth, a year to year and a half worth of runway is a good amount to have on hand. That said, imagine you have a prototype for a tech play. You've come up with the UI, UX, and, you know, it's not going to be that hard to move from, you know, whatever the beta or prototype you've developed to maybe actually putting the code together and hiring the developers to get you through actually an out a live alpha and start test marketing. Well, depending on how long the dev timeline is for that, you know, you can produce some really important data pretty quickly once you go hot in an alpha and beta. Uh, so potentially then you might raise a little bit less. Uh, because you know you're close to a, mile, a, a meaningful milestone that won't take too long to get to, uh, that if the project works, uh, you have a very uh, big step up in your valuation. That said, I would always be conservative and you know, make sure you have enough money in the bank because uh, you, you always want to avoid the hard choices of this is going on my personal credit cards because we don't have mm -hmm. Right, that's a really good point. Uh, never recommending people to get any debt on their personal credit cards, you know, for their company. But uh, those decisions have to be made sometimes, unfortunately. Uh, so, by the way, here I would like to actually go a few steps back and check back with our pre-seed requirements. So recently I've been seeing more and more founders saying that, you know, I'm on my pre-seed, but seems like most investors, even angel investors who claim to be very early on investors, even they require some kind of traction. Do you think that's accurate or not? Not really. What do you think? Uh, I think that it depends on the situation. And specifically, let me give you a framework that I like to think about. And I've written a lot of checks into some early stage companies over the years. And I look at four things, or four, I look at four lenses on something when it's super early. People, opportunity, deal, and context. 
So who are the people involved? What's the team? And specifically, you know, does that does that team know their industry cold, what they're proposing to do, and are they known throughout that industry? So for example, I'm making something up. If the founders of MySpace, you know, back in the day, you know, had come to me and said, pitch, pitch me a new social media company, I'd say, well, those people probably know quite a bit about what they're doing, and they're probably known in the right communities. That's critical to me, because mm -hmm. the rest of it, the deal, the opportunity, and the context, uh, the opportunity and the context will always change. Uh, and we'll learn about that as the business goes on, but it's the team that's going to really make all the difference. And there's an expression where, you know, a C team is going to take an A idea and turn it into a C idea, and an A, and an a team can take a C, C idea and make it an A idea. So most importantly, the earlier it is, the more important the people are, and I always look for people who know what they're talking about and are known throughout the industry they're talking about. In contrast, if someone said, hey, I want to start a restaurant and they have a great restaurant concept, uh, but they've never run a commercial kitchen or had no food industry experience, it could be a great idea. They're just not the right people to execute against it if they don't have teammates that they've put together that then speak to that experience. So I like people who know what they're talking about and are known in that industry. And the known piece is similarly, if you use that hypothetical MySpace example, you got to recruit a team. You know, so it's going to be your credibility, your track record and your network that's going to attract not just the investors to the table, but also the, the key hires that are going to move the project forward. So, you know, the opportunity in the basic business and, you know, when someone shows me numbers, you know, I can pretty much take any early stage pre-revenue business plan and throw it out the window. Uh, but I do like, but I judge that business plan and revenue model by the quality of thought and the assumptions and the depth of those assumptions. Uh, but really it just comes down to, the opportunity, do I like it? Is the context for that opportunity good? And then given that it's the friends and families and fools round or pretty close to that or pretty early stage, I got to understand the deal, which is, is there enough return to justify the fact that I'm going to look at 20 of these deals at this stage and only two or three are going to work out. So I'm going to lose, you know, and maybe I'll get a double on the other two and I'll get a single on one and then the other 70 and then and then three quarters of them will be zeros. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I want to make sure there's a decent enough deal at each stage. I want to make sure the context and the opportunity is right. But number one thing early is the people it's got it's all about those people. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's 100%. I think that's the thing that founders really overlook this time. I mean, especially early stage founders, they put the team slide like on slide 12 out of 13. And, and uh, I just don't quite see why. Why? And I've seen a lot of templates that do the same exact thing. And I, 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 I don't get it, honestly. Like, come on, put it number four, I think. Uh, but anyways, that's, that's kind of an inside pain of mine. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to the more 
comparison of current situation versus the starting point of your career. So you started your first company, as you mentioned, in college and you now comparing to your current company, which is Candescent, what are the major differences you see there in terms of you know, approaching the company building itself? Well, you first you can see a guy who doesn't who who learned things the hard way. Because when I started a company when I was twenty, I clearly knew very little, and I was known even less. So um, that was a paradigm difference. Now I had versus you go thirty years later in my career or twenty five years later in career where I have a deep and you know personal network of people I've worked with who know my, you know that I've, I've been in lots of different industries I happen to have uh, be decent I had a family member who was quite connected into the cannabis industry so we were able to put a, a really good team together early I mean so it was sort of night and day uh, and then the only thing I'd say is you know that first company, for me, starting it early, uh, it was it set the table for everything else I did in my career. And while it was not the most financially successful of the things I I, I ended up doing in my career, <laughs> I'd say the education it gave me at such a young age in my career was so invaluable. Because excuse the expression, but if there was dog shit on the street. I found a way to drag my foot through it <laughs> in my first rodeo. And, you know, I really can't emphasize this enough to any entrepreneur or would be entrepreneurs. Like the dream is, you know, the Elon Musk. And, that, and those are the stories that everyone talks about. It's sort of like fishing, you know, everyone caught 18 <laughs> fish that were huge. You know, uh, there's some great books written by startup founders and like uh, I think uh, uh, the guy from Andreessen Horowitz uh, talks about the hard things. He wrote a book called The Hard Things About Hard Things. Basically, what the dirty little secret when everything goes wrong in your startup mm -hmm. and how to manage through it. I mean, it's, you know, this is a huge personal decision for people failing slowly in life, especially if you have a family or kids, uh, a wife or a husband, uh, whatever your situation is. You know, when I was 20, the great news was I was able, you know, back in 1992 to pay myself $600 a month and live off. Of it. And yeah, there were many nights I was digging through the couch cushions looking for quarters. And uh, I'll never forget the the time, like every month, my business partner and I, because we made the same amount, uh, our once a month treat to ourselves is we went to the all you can eat buffet at Bangkok Orchid for lunch for $6.99. That was this, but pretty much everything else was potatoes and pasta, uh, you know, home cooked. But anyway, the point is, I could afford that risk profile when I was 20. Uh, I could never take on that type of risk profile with three teenage kids and a wife now. So, you know, that, that was a primary difference. Uh, I knew a lot more. I know a lot more now. Uh, but then, uh, and some things never changed. You know, I'm in certain ways, I'm the same entrepreneur I was 30 years ago. Uh, when I set my mind to something, you know, it's, I understand it's a 90 hour week. And there was no difference between that at 20 and, and now at 50. 
Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, that's I love love those stories to be honest. So let's talk a little bit more about those stories. And I mean, uh, roughly ten percent of my listeners are early graduates from universities or actually current students. So they're where you were 30 years ago. Uh, what's your advice to those people right now? What would you recommend them doing? Uh, go for it. You're, you have max flexibility in your life. The worst thing you're going to, worst thing that happens is you fail. Uh, and failure, if you're just a recent college graduate or maybe you didn't go to school till you're 18 to 22 or 23, so you spend two years working on something and it doesn't work out, you can still fully rebuild without too much setback at 25 or however long you invest in it. Uh, so I say, yeah, you should jump in because you're going to get a world-class real life MBA, all the stuff they don't teach you in a bu in business school. You're going to learn how to read contracts for a living. You're going to learn how to develop a sales plan. You're going to learn how to get real world practical marketing. And if you're one of those people who wants to be an entrepreneur and knows, you know, it's just in their DNA, uh, you'll start building that cross-functional experience early in your career. I mean, I can tell you honestly, I was scared of financial statements in my first startup. I didn't I didn't even really use them. I was the CEO. You could say, well, that's sort of suicidal. And the answer is yeah, that sort of was. Uh, you know, I had a my my partner was my CFO, but I just wasn't comfortable with numbers at that point. But the point is I learned so much about every other aspect. I learned I had to do a little bit of coding in uh you know, I had to learn how to build out a database. I had to build the marketing plan. I learned about sales. Uh, I went door to, it was a lot of door to door sales. I mean, I learned so much that then let me see across an organization that could be redeployed later in my career and still informs me today. And so I looked at it as it was a win either way. If the mm -hmm. company works and hits big, well, great. Now you're light years ahead in your career and you have financial freedom at a young stage in your life to go on to do bigger and better things. But if it doesn't work out, you got a world-class education uh, to work with. Mm -hmm. Right. Speaking of hard knocks. Right, right. Speaking of education, you know, life lessons are great, but I still highly encourage my listeners to get their diplomas from actual universities as it's just, you know, uh, additional safety net is just safer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and, and Constantine, I, let me speak to that for a second. Sure. You know, I've been an entrepreneur my entire career and I've gone into various situations. I also have a double major magna cum laude from Georgetown and an MBA from Harvard. Uh, the point, the reason for me to bring that up is I always had a safety net from that education that allowed me to take on that risk uh, because if I needed to recruit, you know, at 40, it would have been hard to recruit back into the mainstream work role because people, you know, I just didn't have the type of, you know, 15, 20 years in one industry. But that said, having a quality educational background will always ground and anchor any of your experiences 
uh, in a way that people read them as serious and meaningful. So whether or not your first company or second company works out, having that diploma and, you know, it'll just be read a different way by people in both success and failure scenarios. As well, mm -hmm. I think it's nothing like learning how to think critically, which education can provide. Right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I thought you're going to try to argue with me here, but <laughs> I'm happy we're on the same page here. Um, so now let's talk a little bit more about, you know, we've touched on to the mistakes that you've done in the past, uh, the things you would like to recommend other founders to do. But let's talk about more of, you know, positive side. The looking back at all your previous companies, what do you think was the best move that you've done in uh, all that experience? You know, looking back at all of it, what's the one thing that comes into your mind when you think like perfect, awesome, success, greatness? Uh, for me, it's all the decisions I've made to sort of follow my passion and instincts are the ones that tend to work out pretty well. Uh, the ones where I'm not as sure and I'm conflicted or I'm trying to do necessarily something that feels more practical, but just doesn't feel right to me. Uh, I've learned over time that I just got to lean into the things uh, that feel right and better. And I'd say it may seem a little self-serving, but I've never been happier professionally uh, starting Candescent. The decision to go into the cannabis industry was sort of a per I never would have imagined it 25 years ago or 30 years ago, but it's sort of the logical conclusion to my career. And so having an opportunity to do one last startup, I probably you know, won't want to start from scratch again uh, in something I'm super passionate about. Uh, you know, there, no matter what happens with it, 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 it's a win because when you're passionate about the mission and the product and the thing you're trying to bring to market, uh, the rest tends to take care of itself. Mm -hmm. Right. That's actually a perfect advice. Love it. So uh, here we're moving on to the you know, more current situation. Once you, as an exit founder, do you do mentorship or angel investment? Since you've already mentioned that, I will kind of modify the question a little bit and ask you where do you get most of your deals from? So do you get them just from your LinkedIn where founders can find you and ask to review their pitch decks or to give them some advice or how do you get most of your deals that you invest in? Uh, well, you know, interestingly, I go through phases in my career where uh, right now, no one, if someone asked me to write a check as an angel, there's no chance I ever would. And I'll miss out on the next Facebook or whatever it is, because I always think about my own personal investable cash as how much am I allocate, how much of my assets do I want allocated towards early stage capital, like mm -hmm. super early stuff. Uh, in my case, I wrote a big check against this company right now. And so it tends to be for me personally, when I monetize something, then I'll probably look at a bunch of deals in while I'm not focused on running my own thing. In terms of where does my deal flow come from personally, it's always going to be through personal networks. Uh, 
and th this is probably going to make me look unpopular to the millennial crowd and below, but you know, I probably get 40 or 50 requests a day via my LinkedIn account. It's just not practical for me to look at pitch decks from people I don't know. Uh, so when I'm interested in looking at things, I, I, I have a personal network. I reach out to it and, you know, the deal flow will start. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's completely understandable. I think it took me some time to get in touch with you through LinkedIn. So, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a tough, tough tool to reach out to, you know, people who are pretty popular. Let's say let's put it this way. Um, so now let's talk about current situation in terms of, you know, those millennials that you've touched on to and basically early stage entrepreneurs, specifically from the fundraising point of view. So what's your recommendation to them? You know, how would you recommend them raising money right now in this COVID world? Uh, well, it, you know, in COVID, I, I don't think COVID should affect things much one way or another. Uh, if you're sitting there, you know, the first thing I did to put it, put it, for example, incandescent, when I decided I was going to raise money, I went into my office and I wrote, I spent about a day and a half thinking about every person I knew from literally elementary school who, and not that I kept in touch with every one of them. And I thought about two things. One, do I think they have the means to invest in something? Two, do I think they know me well enough that they would trust me to write a check to me in my enterprise? So my advice is write a really long list. Get that list together. If you're in a situation where you sit down and there's no one on that list, well, now you're now you need to revisit your assumptions and say, am I known well enough to go out and actually do this? And, mm -hmm. you know, because, again, there's nothing worse than failing slowly, you know, and if you're really set on if you're an entrepreneur, there's always going to be night, you know, there's you're, you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of ideas across your lifetime and so you know my attitude is if you're if you can't develop that list because that list is then pretty easy you start emailing them individually not some spam mail you don't send out you know you try to get individual calls with some of those people who would be in your friends or family or some of your you know network and you start talking through and you know what you're you're trying to do and and then you know at a conceptual level and then you uh maybe schedule a pitch call uh for them if they're interested and you know if i were to give another piece of advice to people here's the most important thing when it comes to raising money mm -hmm. right get, I think get your head around the fact that eight out of ten people are going to say no mm -hmm. and the reason i say that and it has nothing to do with you again i when i say you not you constantine i mean you as the entrepreneur uh, right. the example i gave is you know earlier which is if someone pitched me 
you know, I'm the fool, but if someone pitched me the next Facebook right now, I probably wouldn't write a check. I, I definitely wouldn't because I wouldn't even take the pitch meeting. And you could say, well, Adrian, you're so close to life and this, that, and the other thing. No, I am not deploying assets, to risk capital assets right now. When I was pitching Candescent uh, to most of my, my network, uh, I knew right away a lot of them weren't going to be able to write a check simply because they work with organ they work on Wall Street and heavy compliance backgrounds and they can't invest in the cannabis industry. So there's a hundreds of some maybe someone's going through a divorce. Maybe someone just had their kids. It has nothing to do with you when they say no more often than not. And so my advice is get thick skin, keep your chin up and but be honest about you know, if you're not getting any positive responses, you got to figure out where is it going wrong and why. And maybe you're not ready as an entrepreneur. Maybe your plan's not strong enough. And that's when every time you get off the a call with someone uh, you, and they're not in the position to invest or they choose not to, you should always say, hey, there's hundreds of reasons not to invest. I'm really curious about why you chose that this opportunity is uh, not for you and assure them you will not hurt my feelings. And it would be a great service to me if you gave me really tough feedback. That's when you'll learn and take that and then you can use that information to get better. Right, right. Definitely, my recommendation is grow thick skin before going out uh, to fundraising to sales because you'll see a lot of not pleasant things coming your way. Uh, so on this, not very positive, but still, you know, uh, really useful advice. We're moving on to the last question of the, uh, today's episode. And, and people just got to, if you've never been a salesman, you know, being an entrepreneur and having to raise money, you are in sales. And sales yep. is a number game numbers game and it's about how many people you put in the top of the sales funnel to get to the number that come out the end for example when i wrote my list i referred to earlier i probably and i'm going from memory i must have had 400 people on that list nice. it led to 20 investors the other thing i'd say is the second you get someone who's actually willing to invest always remember birds of a feather flock together you should ask that person quickly, do you know anyone else uh, who might be interested in investing? And here's, I'm going to give people Adrian Sedlin's theory of ice cream uh, as it relates to raising money. The human condition is inherently insecure. And so if someone just decided to buy your flavor of ice cream, your business plan, they're inherently going to feel the need to get that validated and share it with other people. You know, if you try a new flavor of ice cream and it's amazing, it's like, what do you do? Oh, dude, you got to try this. Same exact mm -hmm. thing with investing. If someone's writing a check, ask them, say, hey, you're part of the team now. Uh, can you think of two or three people, you know, that I might want to talk to that you'd be willing to help, you know, help your investment along and make that introduction? Not an endorsement, just position it as, you know, this is something I'm doing and you may be interested because you, you'll find half year round is filled out by those types, the referrals. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Right. I actually love the Adrian Sedlin's theory of ice cream. <laughs> I really love it. Uh, so here on this more positive note, we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So Adrian, what's the one thing you want listeners to do as soon as the episode is over? I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Sure. So as a call to action, what is the one thing you want the listener to do like as soon as the episode is over? Oh, what should what should your listeners do to for for raising money? Um, uh, it can be anything, raising money. Okay, well, uh, I will tell you, uh, it, it may not have to do with raising money, but uh, if you don't make habit of it every day and as a big part of your life, I'd say get in the exercise and practice of gratitude. And I'll spend a moment on that. Uh, expectation, if someone doesn't write me a check and I get frustrated by 100 people not writing me checks, that's because I have an expectation that they should write me a check. That leads to frustration and, and continued frustration breeds anger. Everyone should practice gratitude daily to get their head in the right space. Uh, instead of counting all the things that are wrong, force yourself to make lists and think about all the things that are right um, in your life. And if, you know, I can say whether you're a success, ridiculously fantastic, successful entrepreneur or your first startup is failing and you're going down in flames, if you're not cold, wet, hungry, have your, you know, didn't grow up in worn, torn Somalia, or, you know, God forbid, you know, there's so many horrific conditions that you could be living in on this planet. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, I, I assure you, you have an extraordinary amount to be grateful for in your life. And I would just say, that's what's going to keep you up you know, as you go through your entrepreneurial career and you meet the adversities of both personal and professional adversity, the practice of gratitude is the fuel that'll keep you even and happy. And when you spend time thinking about all the things that are wonderful and great, not sort of in a Disney, you know, animated movie kind of <laughs> way, but genuinely focus on the things that are right, you know, if you're married and you fight with your spouse, you know, you can spend two hours thinking about how how mad you are at your spouse. But if you actually invest a little bit of energy thinking about all the wonderful things that your spouse is and you force yourself to count those things, you're going to be in a much better mood and see life through a much better lens and be a much more productive person out there. So my advice, practice gratitude. That's that's actually a really good point. I generally do not support those, you know, self-analyzing uh, methodologies, but sometimes it does help. So, like, I personally recommend you writing a list of things you've done during the day, you know, even if small things. Like, for me, I usually bulk them together into things that take about an hour. So, I don't know, if I have eight calls today, I'm going to put 
tasks of two calls per paper. And once I'm done with two calls, you know, I put them on a desk and by the end of the day, you can see how much you've done. And you're like, oh, there's a lot. So I'm going to pat myself on the back. So definitely, uh, you know, try doing, uh, try following Adrian's advice. Of course, follow mine advice. And of course, take a look at the description of this episode. I'll leave a few links there to the resources mentioned during the, this episode, specifically to Adrian's LinkedIn and to Candescent, if you're curious to see how it works. And also I'll leave a link to the application where you can just put your idea. And if I like it, I'll connect you to the proper mentors and actively invest in investors. So definitely do that and have a good day.